Chris, talk to me about how you define consciousness. Um, I think I'm going to use your paper, The Neural Basis of Consciousness, as the, as the foundation for how I'm going to approach the questions for this interview. How would you right. define consciousness and why is it important to make certain uh, differentiations, for example, contents of consciousness versus level of consciousness? Uh, yeah, let's run through that. Well, I follow most people in defining consciousness as having subjective experiences. And I think that the distinction between level and content is important because it probably in involves different ways of doing the experiments and thinking about the brain systems involved. So level of consciousness at one extreme, a high level of consciousness, you are having subjective experiences. And then of course you can go into a low level sometimes, for example, people who are in this minimally conscious state after brain injury, they will sometimes have contents of consciousness, but maybe not. And then in, when you're unconscious or in coma, you're not having any subjective experiences. Now, the contents of consciousness is, of course, is talking about what are the subjective experiences. And in particular, I and many others in the brain imaging world have been fascinated by the observation that when we are conscious, we are aware or conscious of some things that are impinging on us and not aware of other things that are impinging on us. And perhaps the most famous example of that is the, which I'm sure you have seen, the video of the gorilla. <clears throat> so this is where you're instructed to watch this video and there are people playing basketball or something and, you, and they're in red shirts and white shirts and you have to count how many times the people in the white shirts pass the ball to each other. And at the end, you ask them, did you see the gorilla? And they say, no. <laughs> Even though if you hadn't been given that instruction and been looking for other things, you'd have obviously noticed the gorilla. So there are many situations where you can show that even though your senses are being stimulated this doesn't actually reach awareness mm -hmm. it goes into the brain but it doesn't become conscious and that's exciting because you can then ask the question what's the difference between the brain activity associated with things that you're aware of and the brain activity associated with things that you respond to but are not aware of mm -hmm. now in that case that's not about the level of consciousness because in both this is the, the level is the same but and you're aware of some things and not of others. And that's why I think that's important. I mean, it's also important for us clinically because you're working obviously as yeah. a clinic, from a clinical perspective. I mean, even myself as a doctor, we have to know, we use the Glasgow coma scale or whatever sort of scale yeah. to try and differentiate it between how conscious someone is versus how conscious they're not. But it's very yeah. different from subjectivity. When it comes to the neural basis of consciousness, Chris, how often do do you get, um, let's say, feedback from people in a negative manner, trying to tell you that there's no way to find a neural basis of something that is subjective? The neural correlates of consciousness do not exist, and the nearly correlations. <laughs> How often do you get this, and what are your responses to that? Well, I, I'm in a sense, they are correlations. That's why we call them the neural correlates of consciousness. So they don't, as on their own, explain how consciousness emerges 
or why consciousness emerges. So one often gets this question. Um, and I guess I would want to say the way I would try get around this problem is to start asking questions about what is the function of consciousness? What is it for? Mm. And um, as I say in the paper, I think that consciousness is a sort of biological phenomenon. It's um, rather than a, something that physicists can tell us about. And that means that I think it evolved so that in early organisms were not conscious. And it's only more recently in evolutionary time that consciousness has emerged. And in that, from that point of view, you have to say it must have had some advantage. It must have given some advantage in order for it to emerge. And then you can, you can ask very difficult questions like at what point in evolution did it emerge? What sort of creatures are consciousness are conscious and what sort of creatures are not conscious? And that's beginning to approach a sort of mechanistic idea because if you if you can work out what consciousness is for, what advantages it gives you, and then you can look at the neural correlates of that, you might start to think about how you could actually make something conscious, mm. which I'm talking about AI now. I mean, what would you have to, how would you program a computer or a robot so that it actually was conscious? Mm. Like, I say I have no idea, but anyway. <laughs> I just going to ask you, like, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Let's, that was something I was going to ask you about later on. I mean, if, if this is something that has evolved, it must have other ways of evolving. I mean, if, if, yeah, if yeah. natural selection has done this, possibly artificial selection is going to do the same with us. Um, yes. So do you think it's possible for us to do this? Considering that the framework we use today, I mean, you're using the Bayesian brain framework. I, I mean, yeah. For the listeners, just so, they, so, I, so I can give them some context, I've quoted you in my dissertation a couple of times. And uh, I mean, I used your work to help help my work. And so thank you for that, first of all, your contributions to the field. <laughs> but the the way you guys approach it, I mean, Friston yourself, I've read so many of you guys' papers. Um, it, it's it's very much part of this Bayesian framework. And, yes. And, and it's, we'll talk about its uh, implications with schizophrenia, et cetera, later on. But do you think we're going to do this with AI? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, I remember, I mean, this has been sort of floating around for a long time, even before we got DeepMind and all these people. I remember about 30 years ago, going to a meeting where an engineer was presenting this computer, which he had programmed to um, in the, um, show attention it could attend to some things and not to other things and he was saying isn't this amazing and this is probably the basis of consciousness and then some elderly philosopher in the back of the lecture theater got up and said have you got ethical permission to turn it off <laughs> that's a very good question though. <laughs> so so and that so that's sort of been hanging around what but there are all sorts of ethical implications of this i think I mean, I don't know what the timeline is. I, I suspect not in my lifetime will we have a conscious um, robotic type device. But one of the questions that I have asked the roboticists who are trying to develop these sort of things is it's all very well developing this in this way. But I would, the question I would ask, how would you know when you had achieved 
your yeah. conscious machine. That's the and I think that's, that's one of the most difficult questions to answer. Yeah, because yeah. because it's it's so blurry the lines. I mean, where do we draw these lines? It was the same with humans. Yeah. We we made the Ian Vital. I mean, what is life? What is not life? I mean, yeah. Yeah. blurry questions. Um, but that's a very good. I mean, I'm very interested in that because I think in the olden days, like in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, for example, there was no distinction between life and consciousness. If you gave it life, you also gave it consciousness. And of course, the monster in the original is hyper conscious, mm. doesn't bear any relation to the thing in the film version. Um, and I, and what's changed, as you were indicating, is that we now have a very good idea of what life is and in some sense can make it with our you know genetic manipulations and so on and it's very much become divorced now from consciousness mm. so we would probably be happy to say that viruses are not conscious and amoeba are probably not conscious so th this distinction has now been made but the big problem now is as you say is where does at what point does consciousness emerge and how do we know that Exactly. Um, do you think that every time science makes progress in a certain field, doubters and skeptics will find another way of adding a layer of importance to us oh, somehow? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes well, I, I, I may be responsible for doing that myself, as we will see later on, probably. I mean, there's a, this is a, I tend to show thought disorder, you'll discover. So I, I, there's an example of this, I think, in psychiatry. There was a very nice book that I had to review for Brain, which is about the sort of history of psychiatry. And what was fascinating is that as soon as some psychiatric disorder is resolved, it ceases to be part of psychiatry. So you had, what was it, tertiary syphilis, mm. which at one point, most of the you know, mental hospitals had patients with this. And then it was resolved and it was discovered precisely what it was. And then it ceased to be psychiatry and also was more or less cured. And the same with epilepsy. That used to be part of psychiatry, but it's now part of neurology. Hunting's career now part of neurology and so on and so on. So psychiatry is always left with the things that no one can explain. <laughs> and I, I think that's the same process that you're suggesting. Even if we explain consciousness, there'll be something else. Mm. Or I think what will happen is there are all sorts of different aspects of consciousness and it will probably divide up into different things and people who have already have different definitions of it. And there will always be parts of it that we haven't resolved yet. And the ones that we have resolved will say, well, that wasn't really part of consciousness. That's not what I meant by consciousness. So, Chris, what do you think then about those people who say that, I mean, subjective experience is merely just a form of introspection? I mean, Daniel Dennett, Keith Frankish, I mean, this is just something we think we have. And it's just because we're articulating it to ourselves and selves, obviously, inverted commas there. But what are your thoughts on illusionism then as a theory of consciousness? Yeah, I think there are two aspects that I don't really understand the idea that consciousness is an illusion because we all experience it. Mm. I'm more sympathetic, although the idea is wrong, to the idea that it has no function. Mm -hmm. And this goes back actually at least as far as Thomas Huxley, who had this nice metaphor. He says, consciousness is like the whistle of a steam engine. It has absolutely no effect on the functioning of the steam engine. Mm. And my response to that is it has a big effect on the functioning of other steam engines. So. <laughs>
response. <laughs> And, and that's exactly why at some point, I mean, uh, when, you when you're talking about um, other species interacting and humans, how important it is for social interaction. So yes, exactly. that's where you yeah. go about with this. Yeah, that's right. You want to touch on that? Let's, let's talk about that. Let's get to that topic for a while. Well, um, I'm trying to remember. Um, one of the problems in the neuro-based, studying neuro-based of consciousness and indeed studying subjective experience in general, is that we know about our own subjective experience, but we don't know about anybody else's. And we rely on them telling us about it, which is, as you say, is to do with introspection. And this in fact has a long, well, in psychological terms, has a long history because this is what um, Fechner was doing in 1860, which is called psychophysics, which you basically make a noise and you say, how loud was that? which is a subjective report. And you get very, very robust, reliable results using this. You can show that loudness, you know, follows a, was it an exponential scale in relation to the actual physical intensity of the stimulus? It's very robust, so it really works. And then it went into disrepute because of behaviorism coming in and saying you can't trust these reports. And I think that's because people just didn't do the reporting properly. But certainly in the studies of the neural base of consciousness, you have to say, for example, were you aware of the gorilla mm. or not, for example? And you rely on, and, or you can have slightly more sophisticated ones where you say, how aware of the gorilla were you on a four point scale or something? And then some people say, well, this is all very well, but when you see these neural activity, is it because of making the report rather than just the experience? And my answer to that is that the ability to make the report is actually a very important part of the experience, because this is this rather wonderful thing that humans especially can do, is we can tell each other about our subjective experiences. Mm. Mm. And I think, and we can get onto that, but I think this actually creates all sorts of advantages, which we can measure. And that gives you one reason why this ability might have evolved but i'm i i used to believe i couldn't really quite understand how you could have conscious experience without being able to without knowing about it or being able to report it but i'm now persuaded that there is an earlier stage where you have the experience but in a sense you're not aware of it <laughs> you're aware of the stimulus but you're not aware of being aware of the stimulus so this is this higher level sometimes called meta consciousness mm -hmm. but i think for when we're studying human consciousness the fact that we can report it is actually a very important aspect of the experience but then how important and do you think linguistics plays a role here because we obviously can't express ourselves uh, as as great as we think we do i mean there's so much more going on inside here compared to what yeah, I yeah. articulate to you. So do you think that's actually could be a hindrance to the way we try and express to ourselves to each other? Well, I know, I think, um, in a sense, there's too much. If we try to express everything, we'd collapse. <laughs> and there's some work called coarse grainy or something that you can actually by reducing, by using these clever ways of reducing what we're talking about to some simplified system, we can actually get a better account of it. 
than if we tried to put the whole thing across. So there is that aspect of it. And I, but I think also by talking to each other, we can discover, first of all, what are the important things to tell each other about? And secondly, we can discover ways of <coughs> talking about them. Mm -hmm. In a sense, that's what art is all about, is new ways of approaching experience and talking about experience and demonstrating experience. And we're getting better and better at that. And this is, becomes complicated because this is all very cultural. Mm, yes. And we would, um, there's, I don't know whether people really believe this, but there's some idea that in ancient Greece, there was a big switch between the Iliad and the Odyssey. And this was to do with the way they thought. So there's an earlier stage where introspection consisted of hearing the gods telling you what to do. And it's only later on that this became awareness of this is what you wanted to do. So there was actually a, a fundamental change in how you understood yourself, which would obviously influence very much how you explained your behavior to other people. So we, and you have this with children, for example, when my grandson hits his twin sister, he says, you know, that was a mistake. I didn't intend to do it. Whereas presumably an ancient Greek child would have said, Zeus told me to or something. <laughs> So there are these very interesting cultural changes, which mean, although our brains are essentially the same as they were, whether it was 100, I can't remember the numbers, 100,000 years ago, the way we use them and the way we talk to each other are dramatically different. What, what and that's because of consciousness. Yeah. What do you think are the differences between the self and consciousness? Or do you think that it is just one thing? Self-consciousness is just its own thing. No, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think the self is a very important aspect of consciousness, but, I'm, but there are all sorts. Of, there are things that I am aware of that are not just about me. Mm. I hope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, certainly, when we are interacting with other people, we become aware of what they are like. So I think there's more to, con I mean, I think the self is an important aspect of consciousness, but it's not the whole of consciousness. Do you think it's just a model we've built? Uh, do you think yes, I think yes, this is, I mean, this is getting back around slowly to the Bayesian idea. Yes, there are all these models. And we have a model of ourselves, which is very much determined, in fact, by other people. Mm -hmm. So my model of myself is probably largely what I think other people think of me. <clears throat> When, when, with this Bayesian idea, I know that when you look at, let's say, for example, schizophrenia, it shows such a wide variety of experience, of conscious experience. You can see it as sort of a, a spectrum. I know Fletcher also yeah. does work on this, where he shows you how inherently all perception can be seen as hallucination or all belief can be seen as delusion. And it's based on these prior expectations and how we experience yeah. that. Oh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, because clearly then everything is technically hallucinatory or delusional. I, well, yes, I, it's partly a matter of how you use the words, but and this goes back along at least to Helmholtz, is the idea that perception is not like being a camera. It's not the world coming into my eye and then I somehow make sense of it. I can only make sense of it if I have some prior expectation of what is out there. And this is, these are what Bayesians call the priors, but it's really 
past experience, prior expectations. And an example of this is that story, I think it's maybe from India, I'm not sure, it's about the, the five blind men who come across an elephant. Uh, I'm not sure. And one of them feels its trunk and says, this is a snake. And then another one feels its leg and says, this is a tree. And another one feels its tail and says, this is a lion or something. <laughs> like that. So because and in every case, they're using their past experience of what this ought to be, given what I'm experiencing now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's similar to the to the the whole bunny duck situation if you've grown up in a place where you've never really seen that rabbit duck illusion where it's one uh, yes, yes, yes. duck if you grew up in a place where you've never seen a rabbit before you're automatically going to see the duck yes exactly, right. exactly. yeah and there's this very strong illusion which you must know about the inverse mask illusion yes so if you have a mask of a face and you see it from the inside where it's effectively an inside out face you cannot see it as an inside out face because inside out faces don't exist <laughs> so yes that's an example of the prior experience taking over um and there's lots of data supporting this idea i think um i mean basically our um, sensations are extremely crude and um, minimal. I mean, vision, we have this, we don't know, we realize this, but there's a very small area in the middle of our field of view where we see things in detail. And beyond that is all blurred, but we're not aware of that. And we fill things in. And there's the famous example of the, um, what's it called? The, um, the blind spot. Mm. So there's this bizarre situation that the retina is the wrong way around. So the blood vessels are in front of the receptors and then they all have to go through a small hole to get back to the rest of the body but we're not aware of this hole we fill it in on the basis of what's immediately around it mm. and you can fool the system to fill it in wrong and so on like that and yet with that blind spot even if you do because there's that experiment i mean you you close an eye and you slowly move your thumb away and then suddenly your thumb disappears and yeah. it still we know it's there and yet your brain it's it's got yes. Can't help. Yeah. And there are many, many optical illusions like that. I mean, there's the Mullalara illusion where you see these two lines of different lengths, yes. even though you know they're not different. Mm, with the arrows and the edges, one's yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Closed. Yeah. 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 And the Necker cube, where it, because it's in two dimensions, it can have three, in three dimensions, it has two possible versions, and you just switch between them. Well, then how do we trust our beliefs and our, our perceptions, Chris? How do we, as scientists, as people trying to figure out this neural basis, how can we trust anything we see? <laughs> well, I mean, I think I would say that our, one version of it, which is what Anil Seth took up, I think, is that our perception is a hallucination constrained by reality, mm. which I also said in my book. Um, and as long as the constraints are good enough, we're fine. I mean, that's the sense that it's, it's, we have a model of the world. What we perceive is our model of the world, not the world. Mm -hmm. And as long as our model is good enough for what we're trying to do, that is sufficient. Mm -hmm. And science operates the same way. So Newton had a model of how the world works, which works incredibly well. 
And then Einstein came along and showed that some little bits at the edge of this model didn't actually work. <laughs> and produced general relativity or whatever it was. It was like Mercury. It was like one of the few things the yes, yes. that Newton's theory just couldn't solve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And so, and I think our perception is very much the same. It works most of the time. And occasionally with these optical illusions, you find where it's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And we can now understand them. And what I, I mean, of course, my being so interested in the social aspect is that, say, we have our own model of the world. And um, not only can we test it by seeing what happens, making predictions and so on, but we can also test it by comparing it with other people's models. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a nice cartoon I found somewhere where, you know, which says that reality is a, a shared hallucination. And that's interesting because, in a sense, what goes wrong perhaps in schizophrenia is they stop sharing. Mm. And then they can go off in these weird directions because they're no longer constrained by what, how other people see things. Yes, and he'll so says that's, that's a very speculative idea, yeah. 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 But so, so, in other words, we're all having these hallucinations, and the only reason why they work is because we're all sharing the same hallucination. And it's once someone diverges on the spectrum that they're no longer in touch with reality. And that's what obviously something like schizophrenia or psychosis is. Yeah. And occasionally we discover that we're not sharing it. So, for example, people who are colorblind mm. often don't discover that they're colorblind until they're adults so a friend of ours didn't discover he was colorblind until he was a doctor and they complained that he was filling in the forms wrong and that's because he didn't realize they were different colors for different <laughs> things <laughs> and perhaps the most famous example of this is the dress yes where suddenly people realize that some were seeing it this way and other people were seeing it other way mm -hmm. yeah the blue and black and white and gold yeah yeah and it turned out no, that blue and black because they then went to Photoshop, right clicked on it, checked exactly what <laughs> color was, and the dress is actually blue and black. When I tell some of my friends that, they still they still think I'm lying to them, and this is not yeah, a true yeah. story. And yet, you know that just, we perceived it differently. One theory is, I'm sure you know this, is to do with, of course, our perception of color is very um, depends on what we think is illuminating the scene. Mm -hmm. mm. And one theory about the dress is that if you think it's being illuminated in daylight, it looks one color. If you think it's being illuminated in artificial light, it's another color. Mm. So, I mean, and again, this is an that's nice for me because of course that's the prior. Your prior is what you think it's being illuminating in, which you have to take into account to actually work out what the colors really are. Yeah. Basically like the checkerboard illusion where you see the shadow and the two greys. Oh yes, and they look completely different. Automatically yeah. think yeah. a different colour. Yeah. And yet still people tend to think that we're lying to them when you show them that this is actually the same colour. You have to legitimately prove yeah. it to them. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But then well, what then do you think about a fixed firm belief? Because that's obviously what some of us have, and then there's this cognitive dissonance when you show them that our perceptions are not really always that accurate. Right, right, right. Well, that's it. I mean, that's, if I would follow Carl Friston here and say there's a sort of hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And 
at the bottom of the hierarchy, you have, you know, what is the real color of this square? And you have priors and uh, about what is being illuminated and you could be persuaded that actually it's a different kind of illumination. But at the top of the hierarchy, you have belief like perception is accurate. Mm. And that's very, that could be very firmly fixed. Mm. And in the sense in schizophrenia, I think you have something eventually goes wrong at the top so the, the you know the idea that everybody is trying to deceive me because is this high level prior that cannot really be changed and it's very difficult to come up with evidence against that idea that everybody is trying to perceive deceive you because of course you're one of the people who's trying to deceive them anyway so that, mm. yeah. and, and it's funny because in those schizophrenic patients some of the psychotic patients these optical these perceptual illusions don't work on them they yes, that's right. Yes, they've, uh, as yeah. is, which shows that their prize have changed or yeah, yeah. from ours. But that's very confusing, and I think that's um, that's uh, that's more research is needed, as they say, mm. because in some cases their priors are too strong, in other cases their priors are too weak. Mm. So there has to be some solution to this observation has to be made. Yeah. So Chris, tell me, what do you think then about because part of when I worked, I mean, we, we did the philosophy and ethics of mental health, you see how we've had three biological sort of revolutions in psychiatry, for example, when Prozac was invented, I mean, that was one of them, I and mean, people went crazy, this was the new craze. Um, and yeah. today it's functional MRIs, uh, better neuroimaging. When yeah. is psychiatry going to actually get a hold <laughs> of the field that they, that, that they really want to do you know is this going to happen in your opinion or do you think we're going to continuously fail at this because well no it's, i guess like what i was saying earlier i think and for example there's this where these very rare i can't remember what is it one percent of people who get a diagnosis of schizophrenia actually have an autoimmune disease mm, okay i didn't know that there's a book somebody there's a journalist who this happened to and she describes it very well and i i th and i think what will happen is that there there are multiple causes of schizophrenia and psychosis and they will gradually be discovered but but not all of them i was a bit like in the olden days i think there, there used to be something called mental deficiency I'm not, um, and currently you know, every week another one percent is explained by some unique genetic alteration, mm. which is gradually explaining all these things. Um, and I think something analogous might happen with schizophrenia. They'll they'll be found. You know, there'll be a genetic version, and there'll be an autoimmune version, and there'll be a, various other versions. And each time that will then become part of neurology and what's left will be unexplained and left to the psychiatrists so somehow. I once tried to figure out the sort of evolutionary basis for psychosis and um, yeah. and I remember I, read, I think I was reading something in evolutionary psychiatry, it was a journal, I can't remember the name, but they were talking about how a lot of foreigners, people who move from one country to another, yes. tend to develop yeah. schizophrenia at a higher rate than those who stay in their own place and uh, and and if you have to think about the evolutionary advantage of that it would be trust people around you a little less because you don't know them and they might not have your yes. best interests at heart so it's fascinating yes. to think that there might be a lot of evolutionary 
basis behind some of these mental illnesses. That's right. I mean, I'm very interested in this, going back to the Bayesian story. There's this idea of volatility. So if you if you're so this is a new way of looking at learning. So you can have fast learning, you can have slow learning. And which you normally we think of slow learning is surely bad, but this is it entirely depends on the environment you're in. Mm. So if you're in a stable environment, then it pays to learn slowly because what you've learned in the past probably still applies. So you don't need to change very much. But if you're in a volatile environment, you have to learn quickly because the situation keeps changing. And I guess if you move to a foreign country, you're precisely in a more volatile environment. Mm. And it's interesting that this does seem to have an effect on the dopamine system. So that, um, in the yes, I think as you increase the amount of dopamine, the, the learning rate will increase, so you're learning faster. Mm which is good for a volatile environment. And of course, if you have a higher level prior that says I'm in an involatile environment, when you're not, this could be, produce all sorts of peculiarities. While we're on the, on neuroanatomy, I mean, when you talk about how we might have emerged or evolved consciousness, I mean, which parts of the brain do you think are most responsible for this? <laughs> this is very controversial, as you probably know. Um, I think there are two aspects to this. I think, first of all, I think it's pretty well agreed that consciousness requires long-range connectivity between different brain regions. And if this breaks down, you become unconscious. Now, certainly in the case of self-conscious or meta-consciousness, I think the frontal cortex is critical because in a sense, it's at the top of this hierarchy, which is where, if it, though we don't know much about it yet, where you're modeling how the rest of the brain works. Mm. And I think that's necessary for this, as I say, this high level of consciousness for sentience, which is what I like to call this lower level of consciousness, which we probably share with many, many animals. That probably, doesn't involve the frontal cortex to the same degree and is probably much more dependent on the long-range connectivity. So one of the things, if we think about sentence, for example, one of the things that has fascinated me for a long time is, um, what's it called? Um, corollary discharge and um, reafference principle. So when we move, and again, Helmholtz was involved in this as part of the reason, reason. When we move our eyes, obviously the image on our retina is jumping about all over the place. But we don't see the world jumping about, we perceive it as stable. And this goes right back to the very beginning of evolution when organisms were able for the first time to move under their own power almost immediately there had to be a mechanism which enabled them to recognize the difference between movement out there due to something else moving and movement out there due to them moving. And this is where the reafference or coronary discharge comes in because you basically, when you move yourself, you have to send a signal to the receptive parts of the brain to say, this is not the world moving, this is me moving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's perhaps that sort of 
interaction between brain areas is the start of something like sentience. And if that's the case, it's certainly present in fish and insects and um, mm. all sorts of much lower organisms than us. I was, I was speaking to Ian McGilchrist. I'm not sure if you're familiar oh, with yeah. We were speaking just the other day and we're talking about like Gazzaniga's work, for example, his work, how important the corpus callosum is in terms of that long range connection you're talking about. I mean, because you split that and a lot can happen. What, what, what comes to your mind when you think about split brain patients? How does it affect anything in terms of your view of consciousness? Well, I'm a little bit dubious about this. Um, I mean, one problem is that they don't do the operation anymore. Mm. So we can't sort of replicate the results. The other problem is that occasionally people turn up who never had a corpus callosum <laughs> and they seem to be remarkably normal <laughs> compared to the late cases where they are split. Mm. So, I mean, clearly, so I, I guess the, I'm not really sure what I would predict ought to happen. I mean, a lot of the brain imaging work in a sense, went against this idea of distinct properties for the left and the right brain. Mm -hmm. So, for example, language was always used to be very much in the left brain, but the brain imaging show there's all sorts of aspects of languages in the right brain as well. Um, there's this interesting phenomenon of left-sided neglect, <clears throat> where there does seem to be some laterality to attention so that one side of the brain seems to attend to both fields and the other side to only one which is slightly odd um so i'm i'm very confused about the role of laterality mm. um, that in terms of that that it's sort of a hemispatial neglect um professor michael graziano at princeton he he has oh, yeah. attention schema theory um, so he sort of says that it's it's more about what we're attending to, uh, and then we build models to tell us what we're attending to, and that's what we sort of call consciousness. Um, yes, it's more of a caricature. We're not really seeing reality as it is. We're just oh yes, yeah. everything we see. Yes, I mean that's another version of what we were talking about earlier. That we have a model of the world, and that's what we see, not the world itself. But I think, yes, his ideas are very interesting in relation to how attention works and particularly the idea that we, once we, you know, we can model our own attention, we can perhaps model other people's attention. And I would even go as far as to say, maybe it's the other way around, that we start off by having to note, it's very important to us to work out where other people are attending to. Mm. I mean, this is not just for us. I mean, there's all this nice work with Tomasello on chimpanzees. So, you the low-ranking chimpanzee has to make sure the high-ranking chimpanzee can't see the food so that they can then yeah. go and get it. <laughs> <Yes>. so, <laughs> so knowing where other people are tending to is very important. And maybe once we have worked out how to do that, we suddenly realize we can apply it to ourselves. <laughs> there's a similar version in relation to theory of mind. So the sort of standard idea was we first of all learn how to think about our own minds our intentions our beliefs and desires and then we apply it to other people but some people have suggested it's actually the other way around mm. we find it so useful to work out what other people are wanting and knowing and desiring 
that we there's a pressure to find that out and then we find we can apply it to ourselves as well fascinating the, so what i'm going to do is chris um, so the podcast is obviously called mind body solutions so we're trying to figure out uh, the answer to the infamous mind body problem so i'm going to run through a couple of theories with you or a couple of philosophical views and i just want to hear your thoughts on them let's start off with panpsychism what, what are your thoughts on panpsychism <laughs> Yes, I don't really understand this. I mean, I, as I said at the beginning, I think consciousness is a biological thing. So I expect to find it in biological entities or machines that are built to, to represent or to copies of biological entities. So it could be in silicon. And I don't really, I mean, the philosophers say that this doesn't solve the hard problem mm. of how you get subjective experience out of a physical entity. And I guess I would say I don't, I don't really worry about that at this stage. But the idea that spoons are, are conscious in some sense doesn't really help me with what I'm trying to do. Do you think it's a problem with semantics here? We're just all just saying the same word in a very different way. I think that's partly it. Yes. I mean, what it depends. What I mean, I don't. Does it make any sense to say that spoons are having subjective experience? I don't know. Mm. But if you then think about something like IIT, integrated information theory, uh, do you think that's following a similar path or because they're also trying to search for a neural basis of consciousness, of course. Yes, I mean, yeah, hmm. I mean, they're clearly searching for a neural basis of consciousness. And I think I would agree that long range connectivity in the brain is very important. What I don't quite get with integrated information theory is that they start from a I can't remember five principles yeah. of how what consciousness is, and I don't agree with them. <laughs> I can't at this moment, I mean, because I don't agree with them, of course, I can't remember what they are. But the, um, I think, for example, that it's integrated, and that, that now, for example, Semi Ezeki was always saying that consciousness wasn't integrated at all, and it was very messy and so on. And so I think their starting point of what consciousness is, is not the same as mine. Do you think global workspace theory does a better job at explaining it? I, yes, I think that's one of the best ones around at the moment. Um, why do you think that? Why do I? Oh, well, I, think, I mean, lots of, well, partly because Stan Dahan's a friend of mine, but the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think, <laughs> but it also, I think it fits the data very well. Um, Mm. I, I, in my paper, I point that out so that it's, but if you think it's to do with working, it goes back to the idea of working memory. Mm -hmm. Working memory very much involves parietal and frontal cortex. You find that front, parietal and frontal cortex are the bits of the brain that are less active and disconnected in coma and vegetative state and things like that. In the experiments I actually did when I was still doing brain imaging, where we were showing looking at the difference between things that you were conscious of and things that were affecting the brain that you were not conscious of. When you became conscious, when you were not conscious of a face, for example, the face area lit up. Mm. But when you were conscious of that face, then parietal and frontal cortex lit up as well. So that sort of fits with this sort of story. I guess my worry about global workspace theory is that it, I don't really quite understand the ignition story and of course it doesn't bring in other people which mm. and how the reporting works and all that sort of thing 
but I think it's a, I, I think it's the best one around at the moment. Though I also like, of course, Hakuen Lau and um, David Rosenthal's higher order thought theory. But that, yeah. Um, can you give me some reasons for the for that one as well? Well, that one I think what is that may be talking about a different thing. So I think higher order thought theory. I think is actually talking about this meta-consciousness, which is this higher level where you're aware that you're aware. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of evidence that, for example, we talk about explicit metacognition, which metacognition being means thinking about thinking. Mm -hmm. So I'm particularly interested in our ability, we, when we make decisions, we can actually think about how likely is this decision to be right? How much confidence do I have in this decision? And we, we have this feeling of confidence. We can actually describe how confident we are to other people. Um, this is actually useful in when we work with other people to compare our levels of confidence. And again, there's lots of brain imaging work, from, particularly from Stephen Fleming, showing that when people have to use confidence, they're actually using a particular part of the frontal cortex, that is the frontal polar area, BA10. Um, which seems to have a special role in thinking about thinking. And it seems to be thinking about thinking is very closely related to this higher order thought mm -hmm. theory of consciousness. So that, that's, so I like that idea, yeah. Yeah, I think so, like, it seems like a lot of these theories have so many good ideas that somehow are just going to accumulate and, and provide us with one at some point. It's, it's almost like they yeah, all kind of yeah. need each other a little bit. Yes, I think that's right. And there, of course, there's an interesting paper recently which looked at all these different theories of consciousness and the way that they test themselves. I mean, the experiments they do to test them, which quite nicely showed, as you might expect, that they test their own theory, but it has no impact whatever on any of the other theories. So that the tests that you use for global workspace theory is jolly good for global workspace theory, but it has no relevance for IIT or how order thought. So in a sense, they have to somehow come together, which is beginning to happen. I remember when I was chatting to Michael Gra Graziano, he was telling me how yeah. you can take attention schema theory and actually pl plunk it onto global workspace theory, and then you have a much better theory of consciousness as yeah, a whole. Because yeah. he yeah, believes I that think... global workspace theory is one of the better ones in terms of yeah. explaining. No, I think, that, I think that's right. But I'm, I'm reminded there's a... I don't know whether you read these novels by Sebastian Folks. I haven't. But one of them, I can't remember what it was called, but it's in fact, it's a series of five different stories. And one of them is about this neuroscientist in Italy who discovers the basis of neural basis of consciousness. And I was involved because he asked me to comment on this before, you know, whether it was plausible and so on. <laughs> and the hippocampus had a major role. But what I found quite nice about this story was that when she does define her in the story she finds the neural base of consciousness and everybody agrees it's a neural base of consciousness and then everybody loses interest <laughs> <laughs> this podcast becomes completely irrelevant let's hope no one can out at any point <laughs> that's exactly what happened with the Ian Vittel I mean going back to what we were talking about earlier yeah. Once it's done, it once we figure it out, once the it's like magic. Uh, yes, yeah. 
Nicholas Humphrey and I were chatting about it. Because he, he calls it phenomenal surrealism. Uh, right. No longer considers it an illusion. He thinks it's more real than real, like red, <laughs> even redder than red, because we perceive it as red. But yeah, he no, sees it as magic. No, I think that's a good point. Actually, it's just, yes, consciousness is more real than real. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, it, I think he called it, I think his paper is redder than red. I can't remember exactly the name. Yes, the, it's, but just on the same topic, though, once once the magician tells you the trick, I mean, you're, you're done. The search is yes, over. Exactly. You're over, the, you're over this whole magical experience. It's finished. Yes, I think so. Some people, I won't name names, like to keep their theories has a, have, has a little bit of magic. It has a little bit that no one can quite understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you think when people <laughs> make these definitions, let's say, like when we claim that it's a hard problem of consciousness, that yeah. we're adding like the element that we don't need. I mean, Daniel Dennis is trying to quine qualia, quining qualia away to make it easier for us to actually find a neural basis of consciousness. Do you think that's a better approach? Not necessarily to that, an illusion, but to at least make I think it's, I think it is a better approach, yes. I mean, the other extreme is, is it McGinn? Is it the people who call themselves Mysterions who um, mm. say it's the, it's, we won't be able to solve it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's clearly a, you know, um, what's the word, a challenge. If you say it's impossible to solve, then it's like, right, we're going to do it then, yeah. <laughs> You think this is a way for philosophers just keep, to keep their jobs in, in certain yeah. ways? <laughs> tell, tell me, Chris, when, when it comes to theory of mind, uh, I mean, you yeah. and your wife, you've done such great work in terms of working together, humans, why we're meant to work together. Um, over, over time, how do you think that this has led to such crazy amounts of technological revolutions i mean in terms of what we've done as a species why do you think humans have done so much more than let's say our cousins chimpanzees bonobos etc yeah. well i think yes i think the basic reason is that as we were saying earlier that we are able actually to share our subjective experiences we can as a result of this we can actually alter our subjective experiences and make them in some sense more accurate better models mm -hmm. of what the world is like because we can talk to each other about the, what world is like and we can get better theories i mean this is what science is all about you have a better and better model of the world it's never never gets there but it gets better each time and um we can in, in a, i mean there's this lovely book by uh, Celia Hayes, which is all about cognitive gadgets, which is about cultural, has given us ways of new ways of thinking. So, it's just, mm. and they, these may be more important than these cognitive tools may be more important than, say, stone tools or iron tools or whatever. I mean, mathematics is an example of a tool which has been created by humans interacting together. So, I mean, and writing is another example. So, I mean, mm. universal um, literacy has only been around for the last 100 years or so. So, it's, it's these, so these are the things that have made us, um, given us all these advantages, which means that we're now dominating the world and probably about to destroy it, but that's another <laughs> matter. Um, 
Like on a and the other thing is very frightening. It could all be lost. Exactly. I mean, that's that's. The yeah. thing. I mean, I, I I was I often ask this. I mean, I don't believe there is any sort of teleology. I don't. I don't I'm very agnostic regarding anything regarding the origins of the universe or why we're here, what we're here to do. But do you think, for example, AI would be the next evolutionary step? And do you think it's meant to be? Do you think that's what humans are actually here to do, in a sense? Well, in some sense, yes. I mean, you could. I, yes, we we wouldn't want to say it was meant to happen. Yes. But we would say the way the system works means it will happen. Mm-hmm. It's the next logical step. But that's obviously yeah. something that will survive. Let's say something a bit more catastrophic on the planet. Um, yeah. Should we send it into space or uh, yeah. do whatever with it? I mean, that's very interesting, and I'm sad that I probably won't live to see this happening, but I'm certainly very interested in, yes, what's happening in AI and deep mind and all this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Sort of quantum computing. I mean, they're doing a lot of in- intriguing stuff, but I also don't think yeah. I'll be alive, to be honest, but then yeah. I still don't think most of us would be alive at that point. <laughs> Things are going down south very quickly. But I think even deep mind, the amazing things they're doing is all happening at this lowest level from a biological point of view. I mean, in my paper, I show this diagram of three levels and the bottom level, we have um, model free learning, as it's called, which depends on having huge amounts of evidence and doing statistical learning. And I think that's what AI can do at the moment. Mm. And it has to... Sorry, uh, sorry, continue, Chris, what were you saying? No, I was just going to say the next step up is to start making models, and they're beginning to do that, but I'm not sure whether that's how far that's gone yet. Yeah. Um, Michael was telling me that they they are applying their theory to, to certain AI, and it's starting to work quite well. I mean, he, yeah. they're, they're making some progress, but they're just very far away uh, to... Yeah. Yeah. With obviously to the complexity that we've reached over billions of years, it takes a long time, but I, yeah. I think we'll get there. I don't know, if it's something I mean, like... certainly in relation to theory of mind, there are. I mean, my worries about our ideas about how theory of mind works is we don't really have a good computational account of how that works, and people are beginning to develop, to develop it, like um, what's his name, Tenenbaum and Griffiths, but the I think it's not quite there yet. And they, they typically say, yes, we've solved this. And I say, well, that's not what I meant by theory of mind. Yeah. Do, do you feel that, I mean, we're obviously following this computational approach right now, but it's because this is the current framework we live in. I mean, people often have this argument that when we understood the way pumps work, that's how we thought the brain worked. When, when the train station, we thought it works the same way, mechanistic. Yeah. Do you feel that perhaps there might be something we'll figure out in the future that will go beyond this computational model? Or you think we got it this time? That we're almost there? Um, no, I'm thinking there, there will certainly be better things. I guess that's a very interesting point because that's absolutely right. I mean, what was wrong with Freud's approach? Because he started off by having this model of the mind that it was basically hydraulic and he didn't know about information flow and such like. So I think that was a big step forward is to go. For, so he was just talking about energy. Mm. And the switch to be able to talk about <clears throat> information, I think, was a crucial step in this direction. <clears throat> and there may well be another crucial step, but of course, because we haven't made it yet, we have absolutely no idea <laughs> what it is. 
But in some sense, I mean, this is a sort of Turing story that you can model anything on a com general computer. Mm -hmm. So you could model your hydraulic system, you could model your steam engine type system. Um, mm. What we don't know is what we should be modeling, I guess. But I mean, I agree entirely that we're always using the, the technology we currently have. Mm. But I think we're beginning to get a sort of meta technology. <clears throat> mm. So we have a technology of technology, which may be the critical step to what the next are your stage. Thoughts, Chris, on idealism. Idealism. Well, that is, I'm not. I guess I'm not quite sure what that means. Do you mean in the sort of platonic sense? So basically, that it's all mind, because um, there's a lot of theories now. I mean, for example, Donald Hoffman, Bernardo Castro. There's there's a lot of people who are saying that it's all in the mind, everything is mind. And uh, yeah, right, yeah. making some very good physical theories, like physics, using a lot of physics to actually prove that space-time, for example, isn't as real as we thought it was according to the mathematics. Uh, and then trying to figure out how consciousness could be fundamental to that. Yes, I haven't really thought about that. Is this a bit solipsistic in the sense that, say, we are creating the world mm. out there? I think, yes, I'm not so happy with that. I mean, I, at least I am very keen to believe that there is a real world out there that we're trying to find out about. Um, but I agree that um, the way what we impose upon it is obviously must be to some extent created by our minds. I mean, this is almost a sort of Bayesian thing that we, the priors come from within. So in that sense, a sort of naive realism. It's a, we, we, we know yeah. that there's something there, but we're just not seeing it as accurately as yeah. we like. Yes, I, I, I'm a naive realist, I think. So I think, yes, we're getting more accurate. Than I, but I believe that there is... I mean, if we don't believe there's anything out there, there's no way we can improve our accuracy. Mm -hmm. We have to be something... I mean, I'm very keen on prediction errors. Yes. I mean, that's a sort of Bayesian story. Errors are a jolly good thing because they tell us about what we don't know. Mm -hmm. mm, exactly. So I, I'm keen on the idea that there are things that we don't know that we will be able to find out a bit about. Mm. T tell me, Chris, when you started out with this, because there's there's a book by John Hogan or is it Hogan or Hagen called Mind Body Problems, right. and what, what the author does is look at different scientists, philosophers, Christoph Koch, for example, each one. And, and it almost goes into a personal deep dive into their life and how their right. personal experiences might have led them to their current belief in consciousness. So, for example, if someone was very spiritual or very religious, somehow thinks consciousness will be fundamental. Someone who's not, who grows up very atheist, uh, tends to think consciousness is an illusion. So how do you think <laughs> your spiritual views and beliefs have shaped the way you think about consciousness today? Well, I was certainly brought up in a very religious family, Anglican, of course. Um, the, but I sort of dropped it. I mean, and I still get a great deal of pleasure from services and singing psalms and peculiar rituals of this sort. Um, so I'm quite, I quite like to be an Anglican on the grounds that these are the Christians who don't actually believe in God. So that's, um, <laughs> <laughs> so 
So from that, I mean, so there's that side of it. I guess my main interest in consciousness probably was because I very early on trained as a clinical psychologist and I actually interacted with people with psychosis who had hallucinations and delusions. And I became completely fascinated by what on earth a hallucination, what it meant to be having a hallucination. And of course, I was also reading Philip K. Dick, which is a very Mm, strong experience. (laughs) And his theme, of course, is that, you know, reality is not what we think it is. And um, what we, you know, we are being, it's an illusion that's been created by evil capitalists of some kind to keep us down. So, I mean, so those two sides may be extremely interested in hallucinations. Why should my my beliefs about the world be any better than these patients that I was interacting with? And I guess that was my start in thinking about. Mm. So I was thinking about hallucinations and I realized very rapidly that this is actually all about consciousness. So a hallucination is the extreme subjective experience because it doesn't actually, it's not based on what's coming into the senses. So it's almost subjective experience without reality. So that was, and I guess that was my main starting point. Mm. And and then at some point, I mean, in your in your in your book, uh, making it the mind. I mean, I remember reading it a long time ago for the first time, and I'm, I mean, it blew my mind as well. It's I mean, you you talk about various different things in your papers, in your books. Altered states of consciousness are one of them. How do you think yeah. altered states of consciousness give us a better idea understanding of consciousness in itself? Well, there's some very interesting. I mean, I talk about this a bit in my paper. Mm-hmm. But I think um, the altered states of consciousness make us realize that, you know, there's more to it than we typically experience. Um, And um, I mean, certainly it's a very basis for studying levels of consciousness when you're talking about altered states due to lack of various things. Mm -hmm. But also the use of psychedelic drugs reveal that you can have states of consciousness that are not like what we are used to and again i think that's very important it's rather like the dress to realize that there there's more to consciousness than perhaps we realize um i'm not quite sure in what direction this is going to go in but it one of the things it's maybe important is going right back to how we started talking about how do you study subjective experience and there is always this problem with psychology that introspection is difficult mm. and we need better tools for doing introspection. And I think studying altered states is one of the ways of improving the tools because it, in a sense, defines different dimensions within, within which we might describe our conscious experience. So it's giving us a better a sort of framework for beginning to talk about our subjective experience, which is what we desperately need so that's and there are a lot of universities nowadays studying like the effects of psilocybin uh yeah. lsd certain drugs on patients with depression etc and it seems to be very promising um, yes i'm the, i'm still a little bit suspicious <laughs> but it's certainly certainly worth looking at further the, i think the one i read i remember there was a five or six month follow-up on patients who had taken a high dose psilocybin trip, yes, four grams at very high dose. And 
and they most of the patients' experiences seem to be they're back to normal at their baseline, which obviously needs to still be peer reviewed a lot more and tested. Yeah. But that does seem to be quite promising because currently, if you look at our current approach to treating depression, I mean, uh, antidepressants are not uh, not up to standard. It's it's no. really disappointing no. actually how effective they are. Well, no, that's a big problem. I mean, also in the study of psychosis, because basically big pharma has stopped doing any research because mm. there's no they, there's no obvious direction to take. So I mean, the, the, we certainly need to somehow get back into that. Although I'm not quite sure where that would take us. But no, I think this is interesting. But as I say, I, I, bigger trials are needed. <clears throat> mm. And well, there's also the work on ketamine. Sorry. Yes, ketamine. ketamine. Yeah. Yes, there's been a lot of studies on that as well. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Joanna Moncrief who really who wrote a book on um, big pharma and how a lot of these drugs are just completely controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. And now it's taken over. It's it's taken a life of, on its own. That the way the science no longer really matters at this point. Yeah. Do you feel the same way as a clinical psychologist that look in psychiatry? I mean, these patients are all no longer sorting out the psychological elements and the social elements. Well, I mean, it's partly to do with the matter of expense, but I mean, the, the drugs, they're still giving the same drugs that were discovered basically in the 50s. Hmm. And the, as I said, the pharmaceutical companies are no longer interested in trying to develop better drugs because they don't know how to. Um, there's a lot of work with... Um, What's it called? Cognitive behavior therapy, although this is um, not as quite as good as we were hoping. The sorry, there was something else I was going to say, but it's partly. And I was in when when I was studying schizophrenia long ago, there were these huge mental hospitals which were full of patients, and they were all closed down. And it was believed that this would help them and they would no longer be institutionalized. Now, this has not worked. It was effectively a money-saving enterprise. And they're now treated in the community, which is a, um, a euphemism for not being treated at all. Um, this is, and I, I, I'm sure that much better procedures could be applied if there was the money to do so. Mm. But we still don't, I mean, whether there's, but this is not about cure, this is about management. Mm. No, true. And, um, and apart from these odd things, like the very rare cases that have autoimmune problems, which can actually be cured, the rest of it, we still don't know. Mm. When, when you look at autistic patients, I mean, you, yeah. your minds are clearly better than one. I mean, you, you and your wife, you, we speak, you speak about this, You've got a graphic novel. You've got, you've you've done a lot of lectures on it. Um, yeah. How do you think that patients with on the autistic spectrum uh, differ from the average person in terms of how they perceive the world from a theory of mind perspective? Well, um, certainly at the more extreme ends of the spectrum, I think they genuinely have difficulty in recognizing that behavior is driven by beliefs mm -hmm. rather than reality 
and therefore the, the, the difficulty in understanding that people can have false beliefs, difficulty in understanding that people can, I mean, this is a dangerous part, people can be deliberately deceiving you mm -hmm. by trying to impart a false belief in you, so they can be over-trusting. Um, yes. So there are these sorts of problems. They, the other area where they may have difficulty is recognizing, you know, which is a part of the same thing. Things like white lies that you can deceive people for good reasons. Mm. And you don't always have to obey the rules. So they tend to be very rule bound mm -hmm. because of not recognizing these sort of gray areas, which can make them difficult to work with because they object to people. <laughs> doing minor infringements, which I'm sure our Prime Minister would suffer from. Anyway, um. <laughs> I, th I think that's one of the things that I do like most about the Bayesian brain approach is that you try and explain, explain this with using Bayes' theorem and using these priors. I mean, it does explain quite a lot of psychiatric disorders. I mean, too many incorrect priors fix more. Yes, I think the danger is it may be explained too much. <laughs> And you, you, I mean, I think it can explain things on a low level, but we need much more testable predictions. Mm. So it's perhaps too good at explaining things, but we, we need to actually have some new hypotheses that we can demonstrate. And if you, okay, so we've, we've, done, we've spoken about uh, panpsychism, uh, idealism, so people just think you're all in the mind. What about those who believe in quantum consciousness? I mean, this is in the microtubules, you've got uh, Hameroff, uh, Penrose. Yeah. This is something uh, more. I don't think we need it. I mean, I think the microtubules is largely discounted as far as I understand it. But I'm not convinced that we need um, a special. I mean, as yet, we don't need to bring in these rather abstruse physical um, mechanisms to explain um, how the brain works. Um, I had, I'm what I, I had once had an interaction with Penfield about. I mean, um, and um, one of his arguments is that the brain cannot be a computer because. You know, people can solve non-computable problems or something. I can't remember the mm. details. And I was objecting to this because I was saying, well, it's, I mean, in fact, when you look at the computation involved, at an unconscious level, we do actually much better than we do at the conscious level. Our conscious processing is actually much more primitive mm. than the unconscious processing. So if we really need quantum type, explanations it may apply at the the unconscious level of how well the brain works but not we don't really need it for the conscious level it seems to me that's a different problem mm -hmm. in a few weeks i'm chatting to mark solms i'm not sure if you know familiar with his work mark solms oh yes psychoanalysis yes yes so he he sort of thinks it's a bit more primitive a lot more primitive actually um that it's yes. not so much to do with the prefrontal cortex and that sort of communication out downward. It's more from the bottom up that where consciousness sort of evolves. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I think that goes back to this idea that the frontal cortex is particularly involved with self-consciousness and meta-consciousness. 
and that sentience may well be much more bottom up. I'm not myself too keen on psychoanalytic approaches to this because I don't quite know how they fit or what it's all about. Mm. But I would certainly agree that there's a lot of, I mean, the, the, the bottom end of sentience, um, which, as I say, is probably shared with fish and bumblebees and so on. Um, the frontal cortex may not be so relevant, and this is certainly, in that sense, very primitive. When you think of other species like, um, let's say, dolphins, uh, yeah. what else? Let's just octopi. I mean, is it yeah. octopuses or octopi? Yeah. I'm not sure what the correct term there is, but uh, a lot of people have done studies now with octopuses and they seem to think that they're a lot more complicated uh, than we thought. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, one, one, task which I, I mean there's this chap Jonathan Birch who's written a great deal about consciousness he's a philosopher about invertebrate consciousness mm -hmm. and I think makes a very good case for octopuses which I think and anyway um to the extent that the it's now I think the government has recognized that octopuses yeah. and squids should be protected in certain ways um but there's a very interesting task which I talk about in my paper, which I, which is this reversal learning. You know about this. This is so. It's a very simple task. For example, you can have two food wells, which have, you know, one's red and one's blue, and food is hidden under one of them, and most creatures can learn with trial and error that it's hidden under the red one. Mm -hmm. And so they do that for some time, and then you switch, without telling them, you switch the reward to the blue one. And then after a few trials, they realize they were wrong, and they realize it's now under the blue one, and you can go on doing this. This is very boring. And a very simple model-free learning device can learn this. But every time you switch, it takes a certain number of trials until it gets the right answer. But most creatures show something which is called learning to learn. So after a few switches, they can switch much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And this involves actually a higher level. You now have to go up to a level which recognizes that the world has two states. It's either the red's, the red's good or the blue's good. And you have to recognize when the state changes. Mm. And this is also very interesting from a Bayesian point of view, because when it's in the, this is all probabilistic. So even when it's, un, when it's usually under the red one, it's only under the red one, say, 80% of the time. So very occasionally you'll find it's under the other one. You'll be wrong. But because you realize it's a state, you say, this, I know this is just noise, so I ignore these prediction errors. This is very, becoming very sophisticated. You say prediction errors are not, only, not always important. Mm -hmm. I can, in some situations, I ignore them. But you've also learned that after a certain amount of time, it's going to switch. And therefore, you start saying, well, I'm reaching the point where I suspect that these prediction errors are becoming important because they may be telling me there's going to be a switch in the state of the world. So I'll start attending to them. And that's how you can switch very rapidly because you, you roughly know when it's going to be. And as soon as they're prediction error at this point, then you say, I'm going to switch to the other one. Mm -hmm. So this is highly sophisticated and enables you to switch quickly. 
Now, what is interesting is that most creatures can do this. <laughs> this is what Jonathan Birch points out, that this rapid learning to learn, this um, reversal learning switch can be found in many animals, you know, goldfish, probably, I think they haven't done bumblebees yet, but they probably will. And I think this is a marker of sentience. You, know, you now have a model of the world that it can be in two different states, rather than just learning this response is good or this response is good. That's the difference between yes. the model free learner who just knows whether the response is good or not and has to unlearn it. And the model determined learner who realizes there are two different states of the world and this is what I have to learn about. And I think that's where sentience is. And if this really is a marker of sentience, then many creatures have it. Mm. That's quite interesting. So even goldfish are able to do this. That's I think, quite, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. I don't see that's that's yeah. fascinating. Um, when when you think about virtual realities, I mean, we're, we're reaching a point where meta. We're talking about things like meta and metaverse. Uh, people yes. are talking about how. We're all at some point going to be computerized. We're going to plug ourselves in, become part of a virtual world. What do you think that it's possible that this is actually a virtual? <laughs> How, do you ever have those sort of philosophical thoughts as a as a very prominent figure in the neuroscience and psychology field? <laughs> no, I have to say, I mean, I've certainly been interested in the idea of a brain in a vat. <laughs> And this really goes right back to Descartes, who was worried about, you know, there's an evil demon that's determining what I'm perceiving. And I guess, but I've never really taken that on board. And I guess it's, again, it's to do with interacting with other people who have slightly different views of the world, who have slightly, you know, who have different past experiences, and it doesn't, if we were all brains in vats, I would have thought the similarity would be much greater. Mm. Or maybe, but it depends on how sophisticated the programmer is. Mm. Um, but I think, so I'm, I'm not really taken with that. I mean, so I'm, I'm certainly very interested in the idea that, you know, with virtual reality, we, we do become brains in vats. Mm. And, but interestingly, we can choose which vat we're in, which is quite... Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. But I, so far, I have not been very impressed with the virtual reality. I have tried, but I'm not very good at it. I mean, Uta was once asked to be on the jury of a, you know, every year they have some competition for the best new game or something. And so we got lots of these games to play and we found that we were completely incompetent at playing them. So it was... So that was probably the reason why I'm not impressed by the virtual <laughs> world, because I'm just not very good at getting into them properly. If you had but, the um, opportunity, Chris, to actually put your brain, download your consciousness and keep it alive and keep it going, would you do that? That's a very interesting question. Um, <laughs> probably not, mm. unless the virtual worlds were much better than they are now. <laughs> And I'm very, I'm very mystified about this idea that we'll soon be able to download our brain into a computer or something because I, it's becoming more and more complicated. I mean, the recent work says that you'd have to take into account, you know, every synapse, not just every neuron. Exactly. And I think that's, that's not enough. And you lose a lot of competition um, in the sense that we are 
very much embodied beings functioning. I mean, a lot of our perceptual experiences come from the fact that we have hands and we count tens because we've got these 10 fingers. Uh, So there's there's a lot that we'd lose out in terms of information. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, the other thing I've been very fascinated by is that the people have started working on there's the occasionally people have six fingers instead of five. And it's to some extent genetic. And I think there's a family in Brazil where they all have six fingers or something. And there's some very interesting work on what they do with their mobile phones. And they're actually able to do more things. Than... <laughs> it's quite cool. <laughs> well, I'm going to read up on that after this. <laughs> and that's another, that's called augmented reality, I think. But I mean, we're going to get things, I mean, machines or whatever, extra bits so that we can actually have more fingers or more arms or whatever it is so that would be quite i mean i guess i'm more interested in that aspect of interacting with reality than the virtual reality it's funny because now david chalmers has completely left consciousness well he hasn't left it but he he's now very much focused on virtual reality and the philosophy of virtual yeah 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 yeah. how do we behave what are the moral what are the ethical principles here Etc. But I think that's interesting because I would be more. In, I would be interested in what he thinks about you know having more hands or. Mm. Mm. And there's also work on having new senses. So, for example, you can wear a belt, which through which you can feel where magnetic north is. Mm. Is that useful? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite interesting because if you grow yeah. up learning how to use it, it yeah. definitely yeah. affects your priors. Yeah. Yeah, and that's again goes back to consciousness because, and then I'm, I'm a, our subjective experience depends a great deal on what sensory inputs we have, and presumably someone who is blind from birth has a very different conscious experience from other people, and likewise, if we can have these extra senses, will that be? What will that do to us? I mean, there's, I mean, again, I'm jumping around a bit, but you know, this recent discovery that some women have four color receptors rather than three. Yes. Yeah. Does it make any difference? Does it? Can you make use of it? Yeah. Yeah. So these are, I guess I'm more interested in these developments. David Eagleman does a lot of work on sensory substitution. Yeah. And how you like you can wear a you can wear a sort of vest that'll yeah. vibrate in a certain way if you are blind, then you've got yeah. glasses on it and it'll like take in the information via a camera and then vibrate yeah. a certain way on your vest and it then you know what reality is. You paint a new picture for yourself. So yes. You can, yes, exactly. But then that leads to the question how much more could we augment this real experience? Yes. Which is, yeah. Yeah. I agree, yeah. which is a lot more intriguing to think about. Do you believe in free will, Chris? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've been, I took a long time, um, but I'm very, again, it's a very social thing. I think the experience of free, having free will is to some extent a social phenomenon. I mean, like I was talking about the ancient Greeks perhaps didn't have, didn't think they had free will because the gods were telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. But if you then re-attribute re- that to, it's me telling myself what to do, then you do have free will. But I'm very interested in, I mean, there's this interesting relationship between free will and responsibility. And we're all brought up to feel responsible for our actions. And this is why I was said very early on, my grandson would 
would, if he hits his twin sister, will say, I'm not responsible because it was an accident. So he's learned very early on to make the distinction between things you do deliberately and things that you do by accident. And this has become very important, at least in Western cultures, about, you know, it's a basis of legal things. You have to be, you have to have the intention mm -hmm. to, to do something, not just, that didn't just happen. And I think this is something we learn on very early on. And we have this feeling that we're responsible for our actions. We have particularly a strong feeling of regret. Mm. So, uh, and the, the mere fact that we can feel regret that I should have done something else implies that at the time we could have done something else. Otherwise, this doesn't make any sense. Mm. So I think, again, the feeling of regret, the feeling of being in control of our actions, these are very important aspects of our conscious experience. And they are the basis of our belief in free will. And they're very important for social cohesion and the rule of law and um, understanding people, because we believe that people do things for reasons. Mm. And in that sense, we, we expect people to have, to some extent, free will. Mm. So I think that's very important. It's a cultural phenomena, but to some extent is created by culture and is also very important for making culture work. Mm -hmm. So, so even though like we, we have these experiments by Benjamin Libet, let's say, or uh, Uri Miles does certain work on it as well, um, you, you still believe just because it, it's because of this fundamental link with moral responsibility yeah, yeah. that you have to take it into account. Yeah. Um, Patrick Haggard has followed up the Libet experiments in many studies. And what he has shown is that, and you know, the experience of action is just like other perceptions. It's very Bayesian. So you have a prior and you have an outcome. So your experience of performing an act is you have a prior intention and you have the outcome and they're bound together to give the experience of the action. And I think what <clears throat> Libet, the reason that Libet finds that, you know, say when I had the decision to do the action is later, is because of this binding phenomena. <clears throat> and you can move it around. I mean, that's what Patrick Haggard has shown. You can move the timing around by what happens afterwards. So in a sense, what happens afterwards is bound into your mm. um, ex subjective experience of the act. So I think the timing is not, the fact that it happens after the brain starts working is not relevant to the problem of whether we have free will or not. It's part of, it's, it's the way the experience is created. Mm. To, to close, Chris, like others, mm. listeners, they often love to, well, when, and some of their favorite neuroscientists, psychologists, philosophers, tell us some book recommendations or author recommendations in general, or your favorite philosophers. If you had to give me five at least, five books. Give me five. <laughs> Within the field, with two teachers. I mean, relevant books. I mean, the, most, the, the book on consciousness that people should now read is Hakuen Lau's new book, In Consciousness We Trust. Is that, I think it's called that. Who's it? Sorry, repeat the author's name. Hakuan Lao. I haven't read it. Oh, L-A-U. I mean, he's worked with... Yes, it's very new. It only came out a month ago. So that tells you a great... It's it's tough. It's not like Anil Seth. It's, um, <laughs> he goes into the, the nitty-gritty of how you do experiments and so on. Okay, so like, it's not like being you. I think Anil's is being you. Yeah, yeah. Um... I'm basically recommending all my friends. Um, Nick Shea 
wrote a few years of, and what's good about but this Hackwen's book is it's I think it's Oxford University Press, but it's free. You can download it for free. Mm, okay. Nick Shea is a philosopher who wrote a couple of years ago a book about representation, which is very important in neuroscience. And I can't remember what it's called, but that's also you can download it for free. Okay. Um, of course, the best best philosophy book if you're interested in Wittgenstein and people mm -hmm. like that, is Logicomics. Okay. Have you, you know that one, which is the graphic novel on the life of Bertrand Russell. Mm. Um, and obviously you have to read a Philip K. Dick book if you want to understand. <laughs> I've got a really cool Philip K. Dick box set uh, from Folio. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yes, do, uh, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is the sort of classic yeah. but there's another one which has the lovely title of the penultimate truth mm. <laughs> um oh gosh it's very difficult stuff i put you on the spot there and a lot of my guests get they get caught in the spot at that moment when i ask them that question yeah. <laughs> but i i haven't yes i i'm not very good on books if, um, if you think about the philosophers who or psychologists who really influenced your view and made made you the person you are today in terms of the thinker you are who do you think played some big roles well i mean there's tim Shalas's book um which is called neuropsychology and mental structure i mean that's quite an old book but that that was very influential on my work and obviously I read, I mean, I read all the old stuff like Donald Hebb's principle, was it, what was he called? Principles of Behaviour? I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure. Um, and going back even further, because I had to give the Bartlett lecture recently, I read Frederick Bartlett's book called Remembering, mm. which is from 1932, but that that has all this sort of Bayesian approach that the memory is constructive and so on. Okay. And has a second section on social psychology, even the effects of culture. Um, Probably anything on Helmholtz as well. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, Helmholtz is very difficult. There is a, there's a little book on Helmholtz. But I, I have to confess, my German is not good enough to have read <laughs> the original. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the book that very much influenced me in early stages was um, was this one, okay. Borges. Oh, nice. Okay. And um, what is it? He Labyrinth. has labyrinths. It's called. But he has. I mean, they're very. They're all very short stories. But one of them is called Funes the Memorious, which is about someone who has some sort of brain damage, which means they can their memory is completely altered and they can remember everything. Mm. Their episodic memory is perfect, as a result of which they abandon concepts. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Interesting. Because they don't need to simplify. <laughs> mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. No, th Chris, th thanks. I mean, everybody, when people look, read it, when people read your work, when people read like people like Friston's work, I mean, they're always curious, like, how do you guys get to the point where you are? Who are the thinkers who make you who you are? 
it's fascinating to see the journey you guys take to get to get to that point. Yeah. Well, it's random, basically. Because <laughs> you guys are there for us. I mean, like one day if somebody asks me these questions, I'm, I'm going to say, people like Chris Fred. I mean, <laughs> so it's, it's great to know who influenced you and who, who played that big role for you guys. Yeah. Do you think, so Chris, I mean, of course, it's mind-body solution. Um, do you think we're going to find a mind-body solution? Uh, we're going to solve this mind-body problem anytime soon? I hope not. Because <laughs> then the magic is gone. Because the magic is gone, yeah. But, but honestly, thanks to you, at least the listeners, I've taken one step closer to the mind-body solution. And I really appreciate you accommodating me, knowing that uh, we're having some horrible weather conditions here in South Africa. I gather, yeah. It's been crazy, like lots of flooding, uh, lots of death. It's, uh, it's been quite intense. Yeah. Right. But you're getting, it's getting back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I appreciate Good. Good. Your, your time and, and for so rescheduling the meeting with me. No, that was fine. Yeah. That's no, thanks. I've enjoyed this chat very much. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chris.